Get ready for Giving Tuesday on November the 28th. Join us in supporting the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's vital work by helping us reach our $45,000 goal. The best part? Generous donors will match the first $12,000, doubling your impact. Donate today to lock in your gift and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. If you've been listening to the podcast the last couple of weeks, you know we recorded a bunch of interviews at this summer's General Assembly and, of course, had some tremendous audio issues that we were unaware of until after the event. These interviews are definitely worth your time and attention. Enjoy. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 704- 406-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Well, our guest is the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Boswell. He's the senior pastor of Myers Park Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Ben, thank you for joining the conversation. Glad to be here. Thanks, Andy. So you created this, uh, this new resource. I'm like holding it up as if this is a video <laughs> podcast. Thank you. Um, yeah. So it's called Confronting Whiteness. Uh, you wrote White dominant congregations in America struggle to talk about race and racism. Um, this book is grounded in your personal experience to, you know, leading your congregation through racial justice in their community. Tell us what that experience was like and how this resource kind of came out of it. Absolutely. Well, so like a lot of people, I, you know, grew up in a moderate uh, religious environment. I grew up in a Methodist church. My parents and Grandparents were very devout Methodists. My grandfather was a Methodist minister. 
Um, and so I grew up in a place where, you know, race was talked about all the time. And my grandfather was active in civil rights. And, you know, I went to Campbell, like you, and I went to Duke, and I, and I went through seminary, and I did a PhD work in, D, in Washington, D.C., and I was actually focused on moral theology and ethics. So I kind of thought, like, I had the race thing figured out, you know? And I, that I was a good, you know, anti-racist person on the side of justice. And then I adopted uh, a black daughter, and everything changed for me. And as I was going through the process of trying to take responsibility for what it is to be a white father of a black daughter in America at this, time, at this day and age, I was also leading congregations that I was pastoring, predominantly very liberal congregations, some alliance congregations, some CBF congregations, through the process of becoming welcoming and affirming on LGBTQ, but also to talk about race uh, in the time of Black Lives Matter, right? So this is Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. And as I would preach about these subjects and talk about it, I would find that the congregation's reaction was very, very strong, even though these were very liberal congregations, including Myers Park Baptist Church. And so I would get frustrated. Uh, you know, it felt like every three steps forward, two steps back, there was a constant kind of process of regression. And I was like, what is going on? And I kept, you know, it must be these congregants. What's wrong with these, you know, these stubborn church members? Uh, and then I had kind of a reckoning moment as I was doing some deep spiritual work through the Academy of Spiritual Formation and doing some doctoral work, and I realized I'm the problem. I was inviting people to go on a journey that I haven't, hadn't gone on yet, and that I, like they and many in, many in these churches and, and myself, my own journey, was really a colorblind racist, uh, not really anti-racist, but steeped in colorblind racist ideology. I don't see color. We're all the same, you know. Um, and it was also a colorblind racist Christianity, the theological vision. So I went on a kind of deep soul journey of trying to look at my whiteness specifically and reading authors uh, who talk about what it means to be white from a black uh, perspective. And that changed my life um, and took me on a journey. And what I wanted to do is try to replicate that journey for people in the congregation, people in the pews. And so that's where this resource comes from. Let's talk about the, the concept of whiteness within the church. Yes. You've dedicated um, whole chapters of this resource to convey what you mean by this. But for the sake of uh, those listening to this interview, what do you mean by whiteness within the church? And, and what are the most common, for lack of better terms, archetypes uh, that most people fail to see within the church around whiteness? Well, I think the first place we have to start is to break down what whiteness is not. Whiteness is not a biological ethnic or natural reality. And when we're formed in whiteness, like you and I were as children, we're, we grow to think of it as just natural, automatic, something that we didn't choose, we just have, like it's an ethnicity, like it's an identity. Um, and it is an identity, but it's really an ideology um, that was invented at a particular time and has a history. And when we start to think of whiteness as an ideology, then we can break it down and see where it came from, how it's evolved, and the way it's worked in American life policy-wise, systemically, and also in the church. Um, so when I look at whiteness, I have to study, okay, what is it exactly? And, and one of the ways that I break this down, uh, I've done some work with um, you know, middle schoolers and elementary school students on whiteness, if you can believe they'll let me talk to middle schoolers about that. My basic definition is that whiteness is a lie that European Christians created to justify taking power and land and stealing things from people. And so when you think about it in that way, um, and I, I'd be happy to argue that definition with anybody if they'd like to talk about it, but if you think about it in that way, it's really hard from a theological perspective not to think about that as sin or evil. 
Um, but we have a lot of theologians and public intellectuals uh, in the black uh, intellectual tradition that show us different images of what whiteness is from the perspective of black people. So we can see ourselves almost like a mirror is being put up for us by people like James Baldwin and W.E.B. Du Bois and Malcolm X and Willie James Jennings and Kelly Brown Douglas. And when we see that, we don't see a picture that we see of ourselves usually. It's a picture that's startling. It's a picture that is oftentimes hard to look at um, because of so much pain and trauma that white folks have caused black people throughout the last 400 years. But there's a spiritual work that needs to be done of looking at that image over and over again and getting stronger muscle memory of being able to look at it and see it and then change based on what we see. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. It might be hard to, to measure how many pastors are in a place where um, they can preach on whiteness from the pulpit right. without driving away half the congregation, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, it's hard yeah. to measure that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, is anything really achieved, honestly, when you think about, like, um, if you alienate and drive away people on a one-off sermon? So alternatively, um, um, you know, you have the conservative media spinning these conversations on race as an attack on white people for being white, right? Right. And, and we know that studies have shown just how much media influences churchgoers oh, yeah. in America these days. So how do we confront whiteness in the church in a way that doesn't create this impulsive and emotional response from people um, that will shut the conversation down before it even starts? I love that question. That's exactly why I created the resource I created. I think a one-off sermon where you just throw the word whiteness in there without any contextual work with your congregation is going to be a problem for you. It's going to be a problem for the, pre the proclaimer because if they're a person who's racialized as white, if they are not on their own spiritual journey of wrestling with their whiteness and looking at their whiteness and how it's informed their life, then they're going to speak um, without that struggle that they've gone through, and so it's going to come across as not rooted in their own personal journey. And congregants can smell that a mile away. 
I created this resource, this, this spiritual journey, because I think you can't just do it in a one-off sermon. This is work that people who are racialized as white have to do together in churches in small groups. So the, the, the sort of the core spiritual process of this is to have a group of eight to 10 people who are racialized as white with a trained facilitator who walk together over a nine-week period in a what I call a, a container that holds them in a, in a space of grace so that they don't shut down in shame and guilt as they come to look at whiteness through the lens and through the eyes of people of color who've written about it. You know, and we also have films. It's not just readings. It's also movies. And so that space begins with spiritual practices like a racial autobiography that writes the story of a person's race from the time that they were born all the way up into today. I just think story is so powerful. When people can get in touch with their story and then share their story, something deeply spiritual, but also just being in that group of eight to 10 people, there's an accountability that's created. And the point of the container is to let the readings and the films create racial stress or what some have called white fragility or whatever, white rage, white tears, to cause that actually to take place, to not be afraid of that, but to cause it in a, in a group that is a predominantly white affinity group with a trained facilitator. But then to not let that shut people down into shame but allow it to evolve from racial stress into growth and enlightenment and transformation. And it takes time. If you don't have that container for folks to walk together where they feel the space, the grace, the trust to share their story truthfully and honestly, they're never gonna actually do the hard work of looking at whiteness and trying to get better, right, in their life. This is not gonna work in a, I mean, the reason I wrote this curriculum, the reason I created this journey is I had been doing the thing a lot of pastors do. Let's have a book study on uh, Jamar Tisby's book or Ibram Kendi. Uh, let's, let's get in the fellowship hall and talk about race. You know, that doesn't really work. And that's what I found that that actually can sometimes be very harmful and set people back. What does work is being in a small group very intentionally and spiritually and thoughtfully showing up week in and week out over a nine week period where you're being honest and, uh, and vulnerable and sharing your personal story. Yeah, I like that. I mean, because at the end of the day, we have to recognize um, that people are going to experience all different kinds of emotions, right? Absolutely. And oftentimes as congregation, congregational leaders, we don't really, we help in times of trauma and times of loss, but we don't necessarily help people through those difficult things. And I think that's why a lot of people when they're confronting their own whiteness um, is they don't have the emotional capacity to process, to go from maybe anger and guilt into something positive and transformational. And so I love the idea of, of somebody journeying alongside us. Um, time we have left, uh, you wrote uh, the concept of introducing new postures and new gestures that explore identity, uh, identifying whiteness in the lives of individuals, the church, community, and culture hold tremendous promise. Um, what hope do you have for the church in confronting whiteness and experiencing transformation in individuals, the church, the community, and culture? Well, some folks would hear me preach sometimes or maybe look at this curriculum and the word whiteness and think, I don't have any hope. But this is all actually born out of a deep hope and faith that white people can change. And I truly believe that. I've seen that. I've walked with people as they've done it. I've walked with people who were incredibly conservative fundamentalists who've done this, people who are Christian nationalists, grandmothers in rural South Carolina. I'm not just talking about urban folks, right? And I, when I've seen that change, it's changed me because it's created a sense of hope in me. Baldwin has this great quote, and Baldwin's really at the core of this curriculum where he says, hope is born every day, and as long as there's people who can take responsibility, there's the chance for hope. 
So what I think white folks are, can do is take responsibility for our whiteness. And every time we do that, and we, we do the work of accountability and responsibility, hope is born anew that day. So I see tremendous promise for the church. I, it's going to be slow. It's going to take time. And without intentional work like this, uh, there will be constant regression, because that's what I think we've seen in America, right? The floor is shifting under us to the right, as white Christian nationalism and fascism just seem to be more bold every day. Uh, so we need practices like this that are, that are not just anti-racist, but spiritual and anti-racist coming together and giving people a small space of grace to walk together on a journey of becoming anti-racist. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for uh, cultivating this resource that was born out of your own personal journey and pastoral journey. I know it'd be helpful for a lot of our leaders. This podcast is presented to you by a new series, the Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. Well, our guest is Mitch Randall. He is the CEO of Good Faith Media. Uh, he thinks I'm picking on him when I say this, but it's true. He has been voted best beard in CBF. <laughs> I, I want to see the results. I want to see the results. Five <laughs> years running. So, Mitch, thanks for joining the conversation. Yeah, it's great to be here, Andy. So uh, you've, you've been at the helm for Good Faith Media for five years now. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so you led it through a rebrand from Ethics Daily into a merger with Nurturing Faith. Every time I see you, you seem to be having fun. Oh, my gosh. I'm having the time of my life. You know, one of the things that we get bogged down in church life, in faith life, is all the negativity out there. And, you know, well-deserved. I mean, my goodness, the church has been guilty of doing some atrocious things throughout the years. But also, there are some good people doing exceptional work. And we get to see that firsthand across the world. There are people out there fighting for justice each and every day, showing compassion, generosity, and love like Jesus taught us to love. And so it's inspiring to see. It's also discouraging when you see the bad parts, but it's also inspiring when you get to see the good in people. One thing can be said about Good Faith Media is that um, it has been coming into existence during a very precarious time in American Christian landscape. And I'm sure from a media standpoint, the endless stories and things to cover is great. Yeah. On the other hand, it seems like bad news just doesn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to be honest with you, that's one of the most difficult decisions we have each and every week at Good Faith Media. Uh, our editorial team does a great job in, uh, in wading through the muck of the news and the stories that come out, not only daily, but it seems like hourly. In fact, uh, when I just before I jumped on this podcast, I uh, got notified that the Supreme Court had ruled against affirmative action uh, in this country. And so, I mean, talk about a game changer. And it seems like that's happening each and every day in the country now. And so one of the biggest uh, challenges that we have is wading through the noise because we all agree there's a lot of noise in this world, and trying to focus our attention on the most essential issues 
that people are facing today and that are going to affect their daily lives. And so we've got a great team who's able to, to be laser focused and to wade through all of the noise to find what we believe are the most important issues the people of faith are facing. You live in Oklahoma, uh, a state well known for its white Christian nationalism politics. Um, it is the home of Hobby yeah, Lobby. In fact, if, if you drive into Oklahoma, that is on the welcome sign. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Oklahoma. The white. We look like a saucepan, and we're home to white Christian nationalism. <laughs> so, yeah, um, you, you recently wrote about the Oklahoma statewide virtual charter school board yeah. uh, voted three two to approve using state funds to support a new Catholic school. While the conversation around white Christian nationalism seems to be uh, gaining traction, meaning people are becoming more aware um, of it. It feels like legislatively things are going the way of conservative evangelicals. Yeah, you would think so. But what is very interesting about that case in Oklahoma is that, yes, the board for uh, charter schools uh, voted three to two to fund a charter, a Catholic charter school, virtual school, mind you, uh, for the very first time in our country's history. So the door has been opened for public funds to be filtered into a religious private institution for education. With that said, the Oklahoma Attorney General, who is as conservative as conservative can be, has looked at that board and said, you just violated the Oklahoma Constitution. <laughs> because it literally says in the Constitution that no money shall go to fund private sectarian schools. And so you've got a branch of conservatism that has gone off of the rails, Andy, and has decided to just entirely ignore the wall of separation of church and state, entirely run over the religious liberty of all citizens in the state, and to just support those institutions that they believe are uh, adjacent to their worldview. So, yes, at some, on some levels, it seems as though white Christian nationalism is gaining strides, but I do believe that there is a sensible faction, even within the conservative movement, that is looking at things and saying, you've gone too far. The Oklahoma Supreme Court has ruled against these, uh, these actions in the past, saying this violates the Oklahoma Constitution. And Oklahoma is an interesting case because of its history. And I write about that in my article at goodfaithmedia.org that Oklahoma knows, they know the dangers of merging church and state. And I tell the story of my great-grandmother, which I may have told on this podcast before, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, my great-grandmother in 1919 was sent to a boarding school at Shilako, Oklahoma, at the border of Oklahoma and Kansas. It was part of the, uh, uh, it was part of the Carlisle uh, school system that uh, Henry Pratt began in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, of trying to convert uh, indigenous people into, you know, good citizens of the United States. And it's called the Pratt Doctrine. And the Pratt Doctrine, it, it's a strange doctrine because in my heart of hearts, I really want to think General Pratt was trying to do the best thing he could in the context he understood it. He was a he was part of the Calvary. He was a general. 
he was fighting the good fight out west and he was killing indigenous people and communities throughout his career. He got tired of that and saw the nonsense of that. And so he began to develop these schools saying that maybe we can just, you know, figure out another peaceful way of getting along besides killing one another. But what he didn't understand was they were, the culture was so dominant and steeped in white supremacy. The Pratt Doctrine is simple. To save the man, you have to kill the Indian. Not in a physical sense, because he gets tired of that, but to kill them culturally and strip them of their cultural identity. And so Oklahoma has a history of that, a history of stripping away those cultural identities and surplanting a white Christian nationalism within these cultures. And it was all funded by public money and conducted by Christian missionaries. They know the dangers of merging church and state together. It is never going to turn out in a positive way. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. We're going to come back to that history here in just a second, but kind of resettling into this new decision. You know, if you really stop and think about the precedent it's setting, it's actually setting up this state, among many others who make decisions like this, uh, for, for litigation, you know. Mm-hmm. What, let's say a, a Baha'i school comes in and applies for the same type of funding or... Um, you know, a Hindu school does the same, and all of a sudden the state is rejecting these requests because we know that when we mean Christian liberty in a lot of more conservative states, it's really just for Christians first. Yeah. Well, you know, so, so what are the major religious liberty issues at, at work here? Well, what we know for certain is that this is a conservative effort across the country. Uh, these pieces of legislation that are being presented within state houses uh, are being written by the same people. Uh, the DeVos family, for example, who are big proponents of, uh, of charter school or virtual charter schools of uh, voucher programs. Uh, you know, organizations like that are writing these pieces of legislation that are being uh, introduced into state legislators across the country. So my theory is that they target states like Oklahoma who have super majorities, knowing that that legislation is going to be passed 
knowing, and even, even if it goes to a vote, because there have been times where like Sharia law uh, in Oklahoma was put on a ballot initiative to be banned. It failed miserably, Andy, because the people know. They know these are silly laws that are going to be passed, but the only reason they're going to be passed is to, as a test case, to see how they filter through the judicial system. And they learn from that. They play the long game. And so they watch it, they learn, and then they file again. And they pass legislation again. Each time moving the country further and further to the right and closer and closer to what I would define as authoritarianism and totalitarianism away from democracy. And so these religious liberty cases are extremely important because I've heard you talk to other guests on this program and the true notion of how they define religious liberty is religious liberty for me and not you. And I also want to reiterate the danger of tolerance. Yes, there may, it may be true that a majority of people would identify as Christians in this country. Now, ask them how to define that. Nobody knows how to define it. But the reality is we must be very careful when we use that kind of language such as tolerance because tolerance puts the majority in a position of authority and rule over the minority. I am tolerating you. Toleration, in my opinion, is a slippery slope. We need to be talking about true religious liberty for all people. You mentioned a while ago about that piece of legislation about the schools. And Oklahoma already knows what's going to happen. I mean, they put the, uh, this monument, uh, this mammoth monument to uh, the Ten Commandments on the state capitol on, and uh, immediately, you know, lawsuits were filed. Why? Because the Church of Satan was going to come and bring their statue <laughs> and place it on there. And, uh, you know, you know, Okies got really scared when they, you know, they, they saw this, you know, statue of this horned goat, you know, with children sitting on its lap. And what is the website of the Church of Satan, anyways? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I was gonna say six 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 work, but you know. And so, but I mean, in fact, the Church of Satan. I can't even believe I'm saying this. They have already publicly stated if this goes through they will start a school in Oklahoma and apply for state dollars for it to be funded. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing about, you know, these, these things. It's the same thing, uh, you know, last, this time last year in General Assembly, yeah. we had, uh, you know, public funds that were used for uh, a Catholic school, I believe. Um, yeah, switching gears a little bit, you're a member of uh, the Muscogee Creek Nation. Yep. Uh, in more recent years, you've done a great deal of work around historic and present justice and uh, systemic justice racism against the American Indian. Mm -hmm. um, a few weeks back, the Supreme Court um, on, you know, uh, handed a, ma a majority win to uh, Native Americans rejecting a challenge to federal law aimed at protecting children and buttressing tribal identity and yeah. these kinds of things. Because this thing is so complex, tell us about, about this ruling and, and why is it so important? Well, the reason the law was implemented in the first place was uh, the terrible, terrible practice of indigenous communities losing their children to white couples in, a, in their attempt to make their own families. 
but they would go into indigenous communities and basically buy these kids. It was human trafficking. And it happened all the time, happened in the United States, happened more so in Canada among the First Nations people. In fact, in Canada, they call it the big scoop. And the big scoop was all of these American families were going to Canada uh, among these First Nations peoples and they were offering a better life for their children and there would be a financial exchange and the children would be gone. The indigenous people didn't realize that kid was never coming back. And so the United States recognized this also in reaction to what was going on with the boarding schools such as Carlisle that Indian children were being ripped from their families and many times, years at a time, being separated from them, and that just was not good. And then, then the temptation of these schools possibly, you know, families coming in and, you know, adopting them or, you know, making them their own, and then there never being any reunification with the family. And so the tribal identity was stripped away from them. It was, as the Pratt Doctrine suggests, killing the Indian. And so the law that you're referring to with the American Indian Child Welfare Law is that tribes should have a say when a tribal child uh, is in the, um, the, the system of potentially being fostered or adopted. And so if this child has a, a native uh, background, its parentage can be rooted back to the tribe, then the tribe should have a say. And it doesn't say that these children may not go to a family with non-indigenous ties, but it means that the tribe needs to be part of that discussion because of what has happened in our history. Now, the case is a very interesting case, and it's a hard case. I mean, you look at the case on its merits, you really do, your heart goes out to this family in Texas. Um, but the law is difficult when you begin to open doors and prevent the tribe from having any say whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, you're right back to where you were 100 years ago. So I understand the emotional side of that case. It is a very difficult case. And again, your heart goes out uh, f for reasons and merits of the case, but th the law is pretty clear. And hopefully there'll be a resolution post decision by the tribe and the family representatives that some resolution can come uh, to that situation. But that law needs to stay intact. The tribes need to continue to have a say uh, in the adoption of Native children. You wrote a story recently um, on Gladys, the killer. Yeah, I did. Uh, I was telling people about here that at the General Assembly, I said, "Man, there's a pot of twenty wells uh, over in Europe, but they're just going after boats, and people are going, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it made national news. You know, boats getting sunk. And our family was recently um, in the Northwest for celebrating my doctoral graduation, and mm -hmm. we went whale watching and got to see orcas in the wild. It was an yeah. incredible experience. Use Gladys uh, as kind of a, a thematic piece to talk about." Right. Uh, Christianity and when it comes relating to sexuality, wrote, some Christians continue to perpetuate a false theology geared towards domination, exclusion, um, and, and 
quality. They claim special divine revelation as evidence of their superiority. Talk to us about, as, as you have done more work, you know, thinking through um, not just social justice, religious freedom, and, and, and ethics around these kinds of things. Um, around, do you feel like we're at this tipping point uh, within the church when it comes to um, where cr- many Christians still are on the conversation of sexuality and gender identity? Oh, I think we're definitely at a, a tipping point. I mean, the good news is culture has already answered that question for us. I mean, uh, large part our LGBTQIA brothers and sisters are being accepted in places that they were never accepted before. Again, we're not fully where we need to be in society, but we're much better where we are now than where we were. But the church still remains this isolated segment of society where a lot of times the doors are closed. I do think we are at a tipping point. And a lot of it has to do with the incredible work of organizations like AWAB, uh, the Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists, other associations and individuals and groups who have been fighting this fight for decades, Andy, decades. I mean, when we write about it and we talk about you know, our support of inclusion and affirmation, you know, that's a recently new thing for some of us. And yet we get praised for it. But we forget the many people who have been fighting this fight for decades. And so do I think we're at a tipping point? Yes. A lot of that evidence tells me, uh, I look to the, uh, the younger generations that are Uh, coming after us. This is not an issue for them. Even in conservative circles, they don't get the exclusion thing. Now, they'll talk, you know, they'll debate political ideologies, economic structures, uh, economic philosophies, uh, social policies, but the whole LGBTQ exclusion inclusion is beyond them. Obviously, there's going to be offshoots of that, the total rejection. But for the most part, I do see us becoming more welcoming and affirming, not only as a society, but as a Christian community. Uh, I think that there's continued resistance to it. But Andy, as you and I well know, nobody's going to give our dear brothers and sisters justice. We're going to have to demand it because those in power will not give up that power and authority. So we need to stand behind them and beside them as they vocalize their story and demand inclusion and affirmation, equality and rights for all of God's children, both in society and in the church. The few minutes we have left, that before taking the helm at Good Faith Media, you pastored the local church for more than two decades. Yeah. Um, you know, I wonder what about your pastoral heart and experience um, have you intentionally layered into the work of Good Faith Media? I understand that the world is complex, and a pastor knows that in a way maybe no other professional knows it, because all congregations, whether they are progressive or fundamentalist, are made up made up of groups of individuals and families that are diverse and complex, and. Pastors are asked to navigate all of that. Uh, 
from personal relationships to traumatic experiences to political ideologies to worldviews. All of that plays a part in this community we call church. And pastors are asked to treat each and every one of their congregants with integrity, respect, and love. Doesn't mean they have to agree with them all the time, but pastors and clergy, in my opinion, do some of the best work in relating to a broad segment of our society than any profession I know. And as the CEO of Good Faith Media, I see it day in, day in, out when I talk to local pastors and their churches. Uh, it is a very uh, complex, sometimes strenuous relationship between clergy and congregations, but it's also beautiful, loving, and compassionate relationship at times between clergy and congregations. So I've tried to take that pastoral philosophy with me into this position, understanding that not everybody lives in the same area code or zip code that I do. And it's not my job to convince them to come live in my neighborhood. It's my job to love them and to show compassion to them and to be the best friend I can be to somebody. I think that's what Jesus taught us to do. Our guest is Mitch Randall, the CEO of Good Faith Media. You can learn more about his work at goodfaithmedia.org. Uh, Mitch, thank you for having the time to have this conversation. Thank you for your incredible work, and keep bearding on. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. <laughs> we are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.